Rolling. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. We're going to have an author on, very distinguished uh, gentleman, of course. Uh, he is the author of several books. It is none other than David Roll. Uh, he is quite infamous uh, in his role of the revised chronologies. Um, his books are extensive. Uh, they include The Test of Time, uh, Legend, uh, the, o- the Lost Testament, uh, the Lords of Avarice, and the newest uh, edition, which we're going to be questioning him about tonight, uh, is Exodus, Myth or History. Uh, he has a very distinguished uh, line that he has uh, uh, been through here. He's got degrees in Egyptology, ancient history, uh, with uh, extensive research uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, uh, his archaeology is considered to be second to none. Uh, his popularity stems principally from uh, his internationally acclaimed TV series, Pharaohs and Kings, which has been seen by millions around the world. And the best-selling book, A Test of Time, which has been translated into no less than 12 languages. The documentary, In Search of Eden, has also reached a huge audience and is consistently being repeated on the satellite channels. Uh, It is Brian and I's uh, great pleasure uh, to have a chronologist on. As as everyone knows, that uh, Brian spends a massive amount of time looking and poring over history to prove uh, whether it be an isochronal uh, type of event or not. Uh, We all know uh, that David uh, got Brian's attention, of course, with uh, Avarice, Uh, His relocation uh, of the Garden of Eden, massive, extensive work he's done there. Uh, He has, of late, uh, be on tour here in the United States. Uh, He has informed me that that's been quite successful, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, But David, uh, welcome to the broadcast, and uh, please give us a brief overview of why you decided uh, to look into the chronology of the Exodus, please. First of all, hi guys, and nice to meet you, nice to talk to you. Yes, well, it all began at a very early age. I started getting interested in ancient Egypt when I was about seven years old, uh, and I went to Egypt for the very first time at the age of nine, so it's been in my blood, as it were, since childhood. But I only went to university to study the subject in detail in my mid-30s, so I was uh, working in the music industry before that. But my love of Egypt extends right back to my early childhood. And so when I went to Egypt, I went there for a reason, uh, to study a particular aspect of ancient Egyptian history, which is the kings and the sequence of the kings and who reigned when and which dynasties came at particular times. And when I went to university, my interest was in trying to solve the problems and difficulties that we find in Egyptian history with regard to the timeline, the historical timeline, the chronology of the kings. Because I, I discovered that one particular period in Egyptian history, what we call the Third Intermediate Period, which comes immediately after the great New Kingdom Empire of Tutankhamun and Ramesses II. Then there's a collapse, a sort of Dark Age period between dynasties or dynasties 21 to 25, and then we get back into known history again. So this Dark Age was the key for me, and this is what I was fascinated by, because I love solving problems. And in Egyptian history terms, this was the problem period. 
what we call the third intermediate period. This is where all the, the trouble was, where scholars were having difficulty working out the timeline. And I, even before I went to university, I realized that something was so seriously wrong there that maybe our calculations for the past for Egyptian history were wrong by several centuries, perhaps as many as 300 years. And what that had done is had made all the ancient history around Egypt, including the Greek world and the Levantine world, the, the, the biblical world, if you like, the Syrians, the Canaanites, the, the Cretans, the Hittites, all those different civilizations also had problems as a result of us donating our Egyptian history, our Egyptian timeline to those civilizations. And they all had these massive dark ages all in the same period. So it seemed very obvious that something was very wrong with Egyptian timeline. And that's why I went to university, to really get the tools and the experience of researching the right way, the academic way, to actually solve these problems. And that's basically what my PhD thesis and all my research since then, for the last 35 years, has been concentrating on, trying to tidy up and sort out the Egyptian timeline. I see. Uh, that is rather interesting because uh, most people... I would say that uh, your research has been tied to biblical events, and uh, that certainly uh, is the case. However, it doesn't uh, sound like that was your original premise. You you really uh, had no concern uh, of the the biblical text whatsoever. You was actually going after the history uh, of Egypt. So uh, there must have been an event horizon mm -hmm. uh, when you uh, realized that uh, either something was uh, wrong uh, with theology and the way people uh, taught the Exodus, or there was something wrong with history itself. And I find that rather intriguing, that uh, from the baseline, uh, you just wanted the data. You wanted to explain this Dark Age mm -hmm. uh, event uh, that had been, uh, for want of a better word, left out of the chronologies. So uh, this is... Uh, brought you, of course, into the uh, realm uh, of religion, uh, mm -hmm. most most importantly, uh, the three major ones uh, related to the biblical text. Uh, so I would ask you point blank, uh, which text did you uh, try to follow? Was it the Masoretic text that you found uh, more information that was pertinent to your studies, or did you find the Septuagint to be more pertinent to your studies? That is a very interesting question, but before I address that, can I say, first of all, that my primary motivation was history, not religion. I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm, I was raised a Catholic when I was a child. But uh, I would call myself an agnostic. But what I mean by that is somebody who still has questions to resolve on my road to, through life, if you like. I still have questions relating to theology and the Bible itself. But what happened was, obviously, if you're going to adjust the Egyptian timeline, as I've been suggesting... That will affect Egypt's relationship to the Bible because obviously the two are, have to be synchronized. They're, they're next door neighbors to each other. Their two histories must interconnect. And what we found was that they weren't interconnecting before. Most scholars say the two, you know, the Bible, the Old Testament and, and Egyptian history have no connections. That the Bible is effectively a work of fiction because it's not been proven to exist within the Egyptian timeline. So that was my initial motivation. But when you've already sorted out the chronology of Egypt and you then look beyond the borders of Egypt, the first country you come to is Israel. It's the ne next door neighbor. And so you have to address biblical history. You have to address the timeline and the events of the Bible in relationship to Egyptian history. And that's what I then had to do. I was forced to do it. So I came across this whole question of addressing the historicity of the Bible. 
Now, when you talk about which version, I start, obviously, with where everybody else starts, which is with the Masoretic text, the, the Hebrew text, as we have it in our modern Bibles, uh, Hebrew Bibles today. But, of course, that is only a 5th century AD version of the Bible because the Masorets copied religiously the text and added the pointing, the diacritical marks, to give us the pronunciation. But the, if we go back to the Qumran scrolls, they are effectively our earliest Hebrew text of the Bible, even though they're fragmentary and we don't have every single book in its entirety. But, of course, the Septuagint is a 100 years earlier than the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Septuagint is actually our, our most ancient version of the Bible that we have. And, of course, the story tells us the reason why it's called the Septuagint is because it's supposedly... 70 great rabbi scholars were commissioned by the, the Greek pharaohs, the Ptolemies, uh, residing in Alexandria, to write the Bible in Greek for their master, the Ptolemies, for the Alexandrian library. So you would expect that to be the most accurate version of the biblical text. We also have the support, of course, of the Aramaic version of the, what we call the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, the Hebrew Tanakh. And we have also Josephus, uh, a first century AD historian, of Jewish uh, birth, but also a Roman citizen, who also wrote down his version of the history of the Jews. So we have all these different documents, and you can't simply rely on the Masoretic text as your only source, or modern e English translations of it. You have to go back to these other sources and make comparisons between them, because as often as not, what we find is the Septuagint, the Aramaic, and, and Josephus all agree, and agree to disagree with the Masoretic text. So when it comes to chronology, it's very interesting that the other three sources have different timelines and different dating systems than the Masoretic text does. I see. That, that is quite interesting to hear your take on that. Uh, and right now I want to breach into something else. There, there had to be uh, other texts you were dealing with. Was, were you dealing with, uh, did the Assyrians uh, lend any help to you or any of the other uh, ancient uh, text? Because... Uh, when you think of Egyptian uh, chronology, you would think uh, the novice would would obviously uh, just assume that the only way you're going to get Egyptian history is from the Egyptians. So, as you've stated, you've uh, used the biblical text. What other texts were involved that you found to be uh, rather invaluable? Right. Well, obviously, apart from the Egyptian timeline, the other great pillar of ancient world chronology are the Mesopotamian timelines of Assyria and Babylon, because we have something called limu lists in the, in the Assyrian period, which are annual uh, inscriptions of the council, the great council of Asher in Assyria, where a, a council leader was appointed each year, and those records exist back to 911 BC. So we're fairly confident that the Assyrian chronology back to 911 BC is quite secure. Now what's really interesting about that is, that we have connections in the biblical text between the personalities and kings of the Bible, especially in the divided monarchy period, and Assyrian kings. So we have uh, many uh, references to battles or uh, conflicts between Assyria and Israel and, and Judah. And later on, of course, we have Babylonian contacts with Judah after the northern kingdom has already been conquered by the Assyrians and the people deported northwards to Assyria and its empire. So when we're looking for a way to construct biblical history up to the time of the divided monarchy, but not before that, so this is not the, the Pachyama of Saul, David, and Solomon, but after that, that period 
it, the timeline is dictated by synchronisms with Assyria. So that's where Assyrian chronology comes in, and it helps us by constructing the divided monarchy period of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So Assyrian chronology, Assyrian texts and documents do play a major part in constructing the timeline of Israel. I see. Let me ask you a further question concerning this. Now, now we know that uh, the Greeks and the Romans uh, had extensive interaction with Egypt herself. Uh, did you find uh, any ancient text uh, in the Greek uh, and or the Roman uh, chronologies that lended uh, more credence uh, to this, uh, well, it's, it's really like a trinity uh, that you're saying, the Egypt and the Assyrian and the biblical text. Uh, but did you find any resources uh, there in the Greek or the Roman uh, text that, that uh, led you assistance there? Right, well, the Greek and Roman materials come in what we call the classical period or post-Hellenistic period. And that is a, a known time period. Everything has been constructed and worked out in that for donkey's years. The classical historians have been working on that era for the last two or three centuries without any problems. The problems really start before that era. So in terms of the timeline, around the date 664 BC is where, if you're looking backwards in time, we start to see problems arise. After 664 BC, which includes the Hellenistic Age and the Persian period, and, and then the later on classical Greek period, and then, of course, the Roman period, all those in what we call safe history, where those aren't the issues. That period is not the issues. And when you look at the texts that we find from that period, they refer mainly to that time, the Roman Republic era, or the Empire period of the emperors, Tacitus, and all those sources. They tell us about a timeline which is well established. They don't help us looking back into what we call the Iron Age, and before that, the Bronze Age. So we're dealing with a completely different era when we're dealing with the Romans and the Greeks. The Bronze Age Greeks, the Heroic Age Greeks, the Agamemnons of this world, the Mycenae and Pylos and all those great uh, cities, Sparta, for instance, they are in the earlier period. So with that period, we don't really have the texts. We have Linear B, which is the original text of that era, but that doesn't really have narrative history. We have slave lists, we have documents about produce and things like that, but we don't have a history, a narrative history in that era. So we don't have any historians from the Bronze Age Greeks world writing about that period until the later time when we get Homer coming along and writing the Iliad and the Odyssey. And those are looking back to the Bronze Age, but they're regarded as legendary tales. They're not what we call accurate history. So when we're dealing with the classical period of Rome and Greece, it doesn't really affect early biblical history or Egyptian history or even Assyrian history. There are two different eras. You might as well be on different planets. Very good. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. Did you get any help looking west? Uh, I do know uh, that Libya uh, was an ancient kingdom as well there uh, with Carthage. Uh, so did you find any texts west of Egypt uh, that lent you any help uh, in your research? Again, the same problem arises because in terms of Carthage, the foundation of Phoenician cities comes in a much later period. So we're dealing with the period of the colonization in, in the Greek world, where the Greek uh, peoples moved out of Greece and colonized different parts of the Mediterranean. And the Phoenicians did it about 50 to 100 years earlier. So again, we are already into known history at that point. So again, the same problem arises. that You don't have anything along the North African coast in Libya or in Carthage that predates the time of the original colonization period, which is in the known historical period. So again, that doesn't help us with the early Iron Age or the late Bronze Age. 
So you have uh, solidified uh, your uh, premise there for labeling this as a dark time. This truly was a dark time when uh, your only resources at your disposal was this uh, trinity, uh, so to mm -hmm. speak, with Egyptian history and Assyrian history and that pivot point uh, being the biblical history in between. Uh, I find that very intriguing, and I, I want to thank you for clarifying that. Um, you're quite, you're quite right. You're quite right to say that effectively this dark age we're talking about, the third intermediate period, which is matched by the Greek dark age and the Anatolian dark age and the Levantine dark age, and even to a degree the Roman dark age, the pre-Roman Republic dark age, all those can, are actually contemporary with each other. All those dark ages are at the same time. Okay, so if if you reduce that dark age in Egyptian history by reducing the third intermediate period by three hundred years. All those other dark ages close down and become much shorter. They last no more than a century. And then they're connected much more to the Bronze Age that preceded it. So by changing the Egyptian timeline, every other civilization in the ancient world's dark ages disappear. So literally speaking, when you uh, took on this task, uh, you were literally providing the key uh, for the tumbler in the lock uh, to unlock this dark period. I find that rather intriguing. Uh, David, uh, let me ask you uh, this. Uh, have you uh, unearthed any evidence as to what the cause was for this, this dark age period? Sure, we sure have got the evidence. <clears throat> it's a long story, but let me start by saying that about uh, 120 years ago, there was no dark ages in these civilizations. No historian conceived of a Greek Dark Age. There was no idea of a Dark Age. The Greeks themselves never referred to a Dark Age between the Bronze Age and their own times. It's as if this, this Dark Age was somehow invented out of nowhere. And the reason it was invented is because what happened was Sir Flinders Petrie, the great archaeologist from UK, who was the father of Egyptian archaeology, went to Egypt and he started excavating in the late 1800s and he, he found what we call Mycenaean pottery, that is the pottery of the town of Agamemnon from Mycenae from the late Bronze Age, he found pottery from that style in Egypt at Tel Alamana where Akhenaten was the king, the famous heretic pharaoh. So what he then realized was that the Mycenaean period of this pottery coincided with the 18th dynasty and the time of Akhenaten. Now Akhenaten is normally dated on this, this mistimed timeline to about 1350 BC okay so he's uh, at 1350 BC and therefore the Mycenaean period has to be at 1350 BC now if you put the Mycenaean period then and then you you look for the next pottery phase in the Iron Age which is the classical period of Greek history suddenly you have a gap of 350 years between the two periods that wasn't there before and that's all created by the fact that Archonarton is dated wrongly at 1350 BC if you take out those 300 years in the third intermediate period, which comes after Archonarton, then Archonarton's dates drop by 300 years, and all of a sudden, the dark age that was created by the discovery of this pottery in the time of the Amarna period, suddenly that dark age disappears again, and we're back to where we were 150 years ago. <laughs> that is astounding. Uh, that is absolutely astounding. Uh, very, very interesting and intriguing, this, this path you have undertaken. Uh, let me bring Brian in here. Uh, Brian, why don't let, let me just pass it off to you. Uh, you are 
by far uh, more qualified uh, to interact uh, with David than I am. And so I will pass the baton to you, my friend. Well, I had just, uh, you know, wanted to bring up, too, your work with the um, Venus tablets of uh, Ami Sadaka. Ami, uh, Ami Zaduga, yes. The Anuma Anu Enlil, they're called in, mm-hmm. the, in the Babylonian text, yes. I actually anticipated you asking that question. That's very, very interesting. Because when I look at uh, the ideas on your websites about prophecy, etc., and end times, what we actually find in the Babylonian text, the Anuma Anu Enlil, is our first historical example recorded outside the biblical text of what we would call prophecy or omens. And that, I think, is very interesting because it gives us an idea how the ancient mind worked. What these Enuma Anu Enlil texts are all about is recording the events that are seen in the celestial night sky, phenomena like eclipses, whether they be lunar or solar eclipses, conjunctions of planets, um, particular times of day when eclipses take place, whether they take place at sunset or in the morning, all those things, they observe the night sky. And then these priests, these astronomer priests, look, standing on the temple roofs observing these things, look at their, t- their own time, the historical period where these, event, these astro- astronomical events take place. And if they see an event in the sky, and then they kill a lamb and they examine the, the liver, which is called extispacy, to see whether it's a good omen or a bad omen, they go and tell the king, oh, this is a bad omen, you're going to die, or Babylon is going to fall, or whatever it might be. And so these are recorded on these tablets so that future kings, thousands of years later, in the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, can refer to these texts, and their soothsayers can refer to these texts and say, well, this is what happened last time this conjunction or this eclipse occurred at a particular time in the year and a particular month on a particular day and at night time or at, uh, at the, if it was a sunset or something. And they say, these specific things happened in the sky last time and Babylon fell. So if this happens again, Babylon will fall again. So this is a form of prophecy, which we call omen texts. And I think this is one of the sources for the original ancient way of seeing and perceiving the universe, that things that happen in the celestial sphere affect human history on the ground. It's such an important you know, aspect that you were able to tie this in and able to cement and give more credence to the revised chronologies that you were building. I mean, it was one thing I found very fascinating um, from the get-go as I started to really dig into and read your work quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we have this, uh, this aspect uh, in, in ancient times of, well, uh, let me refer to the Bible again. That's, that's how the Bible uh, starts out. Uh, you know, the very first chapter, it says that uh, uh, the stars uh, were made for signs and for seasons. That kind of echoes that. Uh, and yeah. it's amazing. Uh, those texts are amazing. And in the simple fact that um, one of the book of Ecclesiastes, it is quoted uh, that that which has been is that which will be. And you're exactly. saying that they and you're saying that they perceive that in the same way. They would line <laughs> up events and and look for uh, a reoccurrence of things on the ground. Is that correct? Yes. Repetition is what it's all about. You observe an astronomical event. A historical event coincides with the date of that astronomical event, and then that gets recorded so that in future times, 
if that astronomical event repeats itself, then history will repeat itself as well. So now, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, did you uh, find this to be helpful? Did the Egyptians do this as well so that you were able to uh, pinpoint certain dates with celestial events that we know about? That's exactly what we did. Um, what we found was that with the modern science and modern computerization, that we can use uh, astronomy programs to back calculate when these events occurred, actually in the sky. So we can get it, we can fix a historical date based on the observation. So for instance, if, if it was a particular thing like a double eclipse, which we have a record of within these uh, Enuma Anuendo texts, where you have a, um, a lunar eclipse at sunrise, at the same time as the sun is arising, at Babylon, on a particular date in a particular month, and then within 15 days we have a solar eclipse in Babylon, that's a unique and very rare double eclipse. And we can look for those using astronomy programs. We can actually find the very time that occurred at that particular location on that particular day by using retrocalculation. Okay, so that's the tool we can use. Now, it's unfortunate, but the Egyptians themselves didn't record these sorts of events. Only the Mesopotamians did that. But then we can find synchronisms between Mesopotamian kings, like King Hammurabi, through a contact of a king in Byblos, who, who, who was related, you know, we actually have documents which link those two kings together, Hammurabi and the king in Byblos called Yantin, and Yantin has a funerary text where he is dedicating it to his master, the pharaoh, Neferhotep of the 13th dynasty. So we can now link Neferhotep of the 13th dynasty to Hammurabi in Babylon. And then we can use the Babylonian astronomical text to date Neferhotep. You see how it works? Yes, I, that is amazing that you're able to utilize uh, these modern uh, uh, programs, uh, modern technology. We have to just plug those dates right in. Uh, so literally at this point, uh, beyond the archaeological evidence, now you have uh, brought to bear on this Dark Ages uh, these astronomical events that could have only happened at specific points in time, uh, yep. thereby building, well, rungs on a ladder, so to speak. Uh, it, enables us, it enables us to bridge this so-called Dark Age back to earlier times. We can actually circumnavigate the question of exactly how long this Dark Age really was because we can go direct to astronomy. We can go to fixed dates within one day, we can be accurate within one day, okay, which means we can pin down some key linkages between Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Bible by using astronomy. I see. Brian, uh, did you have further questions? I'm intrigued here. I just wanted to, you know, start stirring this and moving towards um, the discovery with uh, Avarice, mm -hmm. um, Goshen, and the discovery with Joseph, because I don't, you know, for anybody that's looked at some of the recent work, uh, Patterns of Evidence, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, the case presented there is just, you know, really incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, the film is a great film. It's visually stunning and it's emotional. And, and young people especially get it because it's a visual representation of the story. The in-depth work, of course, is in the books, like, as you said, Exodus, Myth or History, or other books that have been published on the subject. So it's, it's not only the visual stimulation of the movie, which has reached, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, but it's also the books as well. There's a lot of research gone into this. A lot of time has been spent on it. 
But we've also been able to use a key thing, which I don't know if it comes across in the movie or not, within the patterns of evidence argument. But basically, the reason why modern historians and archaeologists reject the Bible as historical is because when they come to a place like Jericho, and they find that the archaeologists have found no evidence of a city of Jericho, either at the time of Ramesses II, where Cecil B. DeMille places the Exodus story, and most scholars do, or whether you go to the 1450 BC date, which is the biblical date, in the middle of the 18th dynasty, neither of those times, either Ramesses II in 1250 or, or, or Thutmose III in the middle of the 18th dynasty in 1450, at neither time is there a Jericho. The Jericho has been in ruins for 600 years. So my simple solution to this was, go and find the Jericho that was destroyed and start from that premise. If you find a Jericho whose walls fell down and was burnt to the ground and abandoned for centuries, that's Joshua's Jericho. And that's exactly what we did. We went back earlier and found that at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, Jericho was destroyed, the walls fell down, it was burnt to the ground, and it was abandoned for 600 years. And so we said, right, that must be Joshua. Now let's look at Egypt. Now let's find out if there were any Israelites in Egypt in the, in the period before that. And we found that in Goshen, in the eastern delta, we have a massive city of Avaris full of Semites, full of 30,000 Semites living in this town. And all of a sudden, at the end of, towards the end of the Middle Bronze Age, they all disappear. They close the doors of their houses and they simply walk away and abandon the place. Now, if that's not the Exodus, what is? I, I'm stunned. Um, let me ask you this, David. Uh, sorry for interjecting here, Brian. That's all right. But uh, I want to make sure I got this question in. Uh, when we open the biblical text, David, uh, we immediately encounter uh, problems in academia. Uh, they say that the uh, Exodus event itself, uh, the primer uh, for why uh, the uh, Semites decided to Exodus uh, that, that location, was uh, this slaughter of the innocents. Uh, have you been able to find uh, any uh, archaeological findings that would lend credence as to why they left with some uh, s some massive die-off uh, of the children. Well, we have indeed, and it's a rather poignant story, but it's a story of, of statistics. In the cemetery re related to this town of Avaris, this big city of Avaris, 30,000 people living there, suddenly in the middle of this time period when the city was thriving and prospering, not only do we find the burials of adults show Harris lines in the bones and show malnutrition in the skeleton frameworks, anthropologists have said, basically, these people go from being prosperous to being poor. And the only thing we can explain that is if they come from being free to being slaves because they're no longer getting the food substitutes that they had before when they were prosperous. And then if we look at the grave populations, and this is a hard thing to, to picture in your head, but if you look at the grave populations, normally in, a, in an ancient graveyard, you will find approximately 25% of all burials are those of infants under the age of one year. That's the standard sort of typical average that you see. So you get this 25% of infants and you get 75% of adults or young, young adults, you know, the combination of the two. Life expectancy in this period was only about 32 to 34 years. So, um, you know, you would have to have your children very long, young. So quite a lot of adults, females especially, died in childbirth because they were too young to have the children. 
But what we find is at this particular site, at one particular moment, the very time that we see the slavery happening, suddenly we find that this 25% of the population of, of infants suddenly jumps to 50%. So there's a doubling of the number of infant burials in Avaris in a, in a sudden moment. And then when we look at the adult population that's left, I mean, in other words, the remaining cemetery burials, the remaining 50%, I think it's three females to every two males is the balance between the male and female population of skeletons, which means there's a skewing in favor of the females. So there are more females than males, which suggests that the extra increase in infant burials that we have are male infants, not female infants. I see that is that is absolutely astonishing that now you're bringing mathematics into the equation, just the law of averages. Uh, something was obviously drastically wrong there uh, that you immediately saw there uh, in the burial sites. Brian? Well, quite, quite simply, you have, you have more infant burials suddenly, and they seem to be predominantly male infants and not female infants, and that matches the story of the Bible of the culling of the male Israelite children. Brian, your thoughts? Again, this is just, it's absolutely fascinating. And you get to the stage where the evidence just, you know, becomes overwhelming. And, you know, I kind of wanted to ask a bit of a question. I know in an introduction of at least um, one, if not two of your books, um, I was just wondering if you could tell the listeners about your first encounter with the statue that, you know, you had later identified as being Joseph with the coat of many colors. Yeah, that's a great story. What we find is this, this, this pyramid tomb in Goshen of a high official with this coat of many colors. There's a statue that was originally standing in the chapel of this pyramid tomb. And, and you, you, you know immediately if you're an Egyptologist that in this period, no high official of state would be given a colossal statue or a pyramid tomb. Those are the domains of kings and queens that high officials never got that sort of privilege. And yet the king has given this high official in the land of Goshen these amazing rewards uh, for his work for the pharaoh, for the state. And this statue was wearing a coat of many colors. You actually see the remains of paint on the statue with stripes in red, blue, and white. And you see that his hair, his hair is red. His skin color on the face is yellow. These are all signs that this guy was a Semite. Not only was he a Semite, but he was a Semite honored in the state to such a degree that he got a king's burial. Now, that is the story of Joseph, the man with the multicolored coat, the man who was honored by Pharaoh. Pharaoh says that only this throne will stand between the, this country and you. In other words, the king is the highest ranking official. And then you have Joseph, second, second in charge of the whole kingdom. So he gets this honor, this reward. And we are in Goshen, the place where the Israelites were. And we have a tomb and we have a palace for this individual, all located there for Joseph in his retirement. And then when you actually dig into the tomb, and this is what the Austrian excavators did, they found the tomb was empty. There was no body there. There was no pottery. There was no wooden uh, coffin. There was no gold, no mummy beads, absolutely nothing. And we, we saw a tunnel going from the chapel back into the, into the tomb beneath the pyramid. And people said, oh, well, this is just tomb robbery. But what robbers are going to take bones out of the tomb? Then they're of no value to anybody. So the only people that could have taken that body out of there are the people who believed 
with reverence that this ancestor must be taken out of the tomb and taken somewhere else. And that's the story of Joseph. Because when Joseph won his deathbed, he told the brethren around him that when they would leave Egypt in the future, they must take his bones with them. And Moses did exactly that. He dug a tunnel into the tomb of Joseph. He removed the coffin of Joseph and he carried it all the way to the promised land where it was buried in Shechem. So this tomb and this palace and this statue in the land of Goshen all match the story of Joseph to a T. It is so remarkable that it's almost incredible that we should have found something like that in Egypt by chance. And, you know, and this is where it begins to tie in as you did the work looking at the pharaohs of that point in time. You know, and I found even more so when uh, the canal is um, brought up, um, the Bar Yusef, the Mm -hmm. waterway of Joseph. Yeah. You know, I was just wondering if you could explain that to the listeners. Yeah, but that's a a slightly complicated one because it it all revolves around Pharaoh's dream. You remember the the, the dream where uh, Joseph comes to interpret Pharaoh's dream, the nightmare he's been having is that seven fat cows climb out of the Nile and start chewing on the bank side, on the, the side of the river. And, then, and seven lean cows follow them out, and they eat, they'll devour the fat cows. And yet the, there's no, when they eat the, the fat cows, they're just exactly the same as they were before, they're lean. And, and this is a strange dream. <clears throat> and Joseph interprets it, that the seven fat cows are the seven years of plenty, followed by the seven lean cows, which are the seven years of famine. But what's never explained in the Bible it's why these cows are coming out of the water, out of the River Nile. And, and, and that's not explained in the biblical text. But what we now learn from this very time period, that is in, during a particular king's reign, the king is called Amenemhat III, there was a huge difference in the amount of flood water which reached Egypt during the inundation season. First of all, in the first seven years, the waters rose about three or four meters above the normal levels. And that would have brought extra water. It would have covered more land at surface. It would have brought more silt to the valley. It would have mean, meant that more harvest could be brought in because more area was cultivated. Those would be the seven, the seven years of plenty. Then the next seven years, suddenly the water levels go even higher. They leap up to four times the normal inundation levels. Now that would have caused drowning of cattle. It would have caused the killing of the livestock. It would have caused the washing away of the villages. But most of all, it would have meant that the land where you plant would have been covered in water for many months beyond the normal time of the cycle. So the water was not dissipating back into the Nile and going back to the Mediterranean. It was staying on the land. And if, you, if the water is waterlogging the land, you can't plant your seeds. And if you can't plant your seeds, four months later, you're not going to get a crop. And if you can't harvest a crop, you're going to get famine. And if you're going to happen, that's going to happen seven years on the trot, you're going to get a terrible seven-year famine. And that seems to be the story of the Joseph famine in the time of Joseph. So what does Joseph do about this? Well, what he actually does is he decides he's going to not only store the grain in all the granaries, which we find at this period, but also he diverts half the flood water into a place called the Fayum, which is a basin in the Sahara Desert, by converting an old riverbed into a canal dredging it, putting locks and dams in, so that half the flood water is diverted away from the delta and away from the capital, so that the water levels get back to the normal levels and all the rest of the water gets taken away into this sump. And what we find, as extraordinary as it may seem, that the traditional name of that river, that extra channel, that canal, is called Bach Yosef, the waterway of Joseph. So it's a memory 
that even from today goes all the way back to the time of Joseph. And this, you know, leads into the question of, you know, does this give credence for why Joseph was held in such high esteem as you find this tomb that is within Goshen? Yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, something as brilliant as this man, <laughs> who could not only foretell or predict what the dreams were all about, interpret them, but also build a whole range of granaries to store the grain during the time of the plenty, but then also developed this huge water system, this, this method of diverting the water. He's a genius. He came up with solutions to every single aspect of the famine. So the pharaoh must have been hugely grateful to him for doing what he did. You've got a brilliant guy here, an actually extraordinary guy. And we've even been able to identify him in the Egyptian texts. He's actually a vizier from the late 12th dynasty and early 13th dynasty, and he's called Anku. And what we discovered is that this name Anku in Egyptian means the one who lives. That's how it's translated. Now, if you remember the story of Joseph, when his brothers sell him into slavery, they take his multicolored coat and they cover it in blood and they take it to the father, Jacob, and they say that Joseph, their brother, has been killed by a wild beast. So Jacob thinks his son is dead and he believes that for 20-odd years. And then suddenly when, when the brothers and Jacob come into Egypt, Jacob found his, his youngest son or the second youngest son is still alive. So Pharaoh says, I'm going to give you an Egyptian name, Zaphanath Pa'aneach. And Zaphanath Pa'anea in Egyptian means Zaphanath Pa'anku, and that means Joseph, he who is called the one who lives. Pharaoh has given him a name that would explain and describe how his father had discovered that his son was still alive. And that is a remarkable piece of evidence in the Bible, that we have the Egyptian name of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's slightly garbled, but when we actually translate it into Egyptian, it means he who is called the one who lives. And I think that is a remarkable because it reflects perfectly the story of Joseph's life. That's just absolutely incredible. There was uh, one detail that I really took note of, and I can't recall if you had brought this up in your earlier books. Um, you know, there was a text that you had pointed out, and we're speaking about the uh, names of the midwives even being listed within this, and then you're seeing several Semitic names at the same time. Yeah, that's a slave list. <clears throat> and that's very interesting because that marks the change from the time of Joseph, when Joseph was alive with this great vizier called Anku. And we discovered that Anku's own sons became viziers after him. So Ephraim and Manasseh also become viziers in Egypt in the 13th dynasty. And then when those two sons have died, a new dynasty of pharaohs comes along that is actually from Thebes, from Upper Egypt. And they have a coup d'etat, and they actually take over the country. And the first of those pharaohs is called Sobekotep III. And in his time, we have papyri, and one specific one in the Brooklyn Museum, which is a list of 95 slaves in an estate in Upper Egypt in Thebes, of which about 60% of them are Semitic slaves. And we look in those, the lists, and we can find biblical names in there. We have Asher, we have Zebulun, we have Menachem, and we have Shifra, and Shifra was one of the midwives told or instructed to go and kill the, 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 the Israelite male children. So these names come right out of the Bible, and here they are in an ancient Egyptian document as slaves in Egypt. So again, that, that matches us, the biblical story of the, the fall of the Israelites from being prosperous 
and bountiful to being subjects to the Egyptian state as slaves, working in the fields. And this is exactly what we see in the Egyptian documents. This brings back to mind, too, that um, prior to the time that you had published your new book, and um, you were doing a, uh, what would you call this, a set of um, quizzes with varied pictures. And I remember at one point in time on the social networks, you had... Um, brought forth the uh, pictures of the pharaohs during that age from the, you know, the varied statues that have been found. And you had asked a very interesting question about what do you notice about their faces and then how that they were um, careworn. Yeah, that's very true, especially the two pharaohs associated with Joseph. <clears throat> In this particular period, uh, we have two co-regents. We have a father called Sinusrat III and a son called Amenemhat III, who I've already mentioned, I believe, to be the pharaoh of the famine. But these two kings were co-regents. They ruled at the same time. The father and son ruled together for 20 years. Obviously, the father preceded, and then he crowned his own son as a co-regent. And then once the father had died, Amenemhat continued to reign for another 20 years. But for a 20-year period in the middle, they overlapped each other. And this is exactly the time that we have Joseph and the famine. So when we look at the faces of these two guys, they're careworn. They have worry lines. They have turned down mouths. They look like they're tired and, and, and exhausted by something. You never see that in Egyptian art anywhere else. All the, ki the kings are all smiley and rather bland. But these two guys are represented completely differently. Their ears are turned around at a right angle so that they can hear the troubles and the worries of the people. They're saying in this imagery, look, people, we too, the kings, are also suffering like you. We too are concerned for the land, for the people. And that's showing that this is a time of trouble. In fact, these two kings were very powerful, the most powerful kings of the period, and yet they show themselves as careworn and tired and concerned. That tells me this is the time of the famine. This is one of the iconographic motifs that says this is a time of trouble in Egypt, and it's the very time that Joseph is trying to resolve the problems of this great famine. And again, this just... You begin to build this incredible case with all of this evidence you know and it's even bringing that forward you know as you began to look for a time frame in the records you know concerning that phase in which Moses lived within Egypt mm. you know and maybe I just could lead into and begin to explain some of that well another little extra biblical evidence that we found was that there was a a Jewish historian called Artapanus, and he was probably of Iranian extraction, so he's one of the exiled Jews, that possibly from Judah, but also possibly from Samaria, <coughs> who ends up up in Persia, in that region. And he's commissioned to come down to Alexandria by these same Ptolemaic Greek pharaohs ruling in Alexandria to write a history of the Jews for the Alexandrian library so it can be stored there. And of course, he's therefore asked to write it in Greek. And unfortunately, because the Alexandrian Library was burned to the ground by the Christians at a later date, we don't have an intact manuscript from his time or his writings. But what we do have is extracts from other scholars, other writers who quote from Artapanus. So we have this tiny little extract that survives today. And it's amazing because it happens to name the Pharaoh who raised Moses in the palace as a prince of Egypt. Now, in the Bible, 
all the time we hear about Pharaoh did this and Pharaoh did that. We don't know the name of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. We don't know the name of the Pharaoh who raised Moses. We don't even know the name from the Bible of the Pharaoh in the time of Joseph's famine. We don't hear about a Pharaoh's name until much, much later in time, after the reign of Solomon, when we hear about Pharaoh Shishak. And that's the first time we hear an Egyptian name in the Bible for a Pharaoh. So Artapanus gives us a piece of information that the Bible does not provide. And he calls the Pharaoh who raised Moses, in other words, Pharaoh, uh, Moses' stepfather, he calls him in Greek, Kenofres. Kenofres. Now, we can translate that Greek back into Egyptian, and it works out to be Carnephore or Carnephora. And that is the coronation name of Pharaoh Carnephora Sobekotep IV, who was the fourth ruler of this new dynasty of Pharaohs that persecuted and enslaved the Israelites that I told you about. So it goes Sobekotep III, Nefahotep I, uh, Awibrehor, and then we find Sobekotep IV Carnephore. Those are the great powerful kings of the 13th dynasty who persecuted and, and enslaved the Egyptians. And yet, Carnephore is the man whose daughter or wife fished out of the river the baby Moses and raised him as the prince of Egypt. And so Artapanus gives us information that the Bible doesn't give us. And so we can place the reign of Moses' birth and raising in the palace to exactly this time, to the time of Sobekot at the fourth. That is absolutely <coughs> amazing. Uh, now, let me get this right, David. I asked you earlier if if there was any Greek text you could rely on for this Dark Ages, and, uh, and, and come to find out that, that we don't, but we have other people that reference it, so, so they give us little quotes about him. Uh, That's I right, found... from, the, from the classical historians. They write, they write about these sorts of things. So you get quotes, for instance, in Josephus. You get quotes in Diodorus Siculus, and people like that. So you're actually right, I should have explained that earlier on, that there are some classical sources that refer back to these legendary times. But what we don't have is a narrative history that survives from that era. We only have fragments, little quotations here, little quotations there. But once, the, once we have a little nugget like this that tells us this is the name of the Egyptian king who raised Moses as a prince of Egypt, that's a really important clue. So it's these little crumbs that you found along the way uh, is what enabled you to revise the chronology itself. We revised the chronology completely independently of the biblical text. We did that based purely on the archaeology and the dating and the copious documentation that we have in Egypt. It was then a case of testing that new timeline against all the other civilizations. So once the timeline was adjusted, we could introduce all this new material into the storyline, which corroborated and, and honed down and fine-tuned the chronology and the synchronisms between the Bible and Egypt. But we didn't start with the premise that we had to synchronize the Bible with Egypt. We started with the premise that we had to solve the problems of Egyptian chronology. Well, I find that absolutely amazing because uh, even I uh, was under the impression that it worked the other way around, but it's all these, all these crumbs that you found along the way uh, that helped you uh, solidify what you were seeing in Egypt. It was just a, a, a simple afterthought uh, that the biblical text ever got involved. That text just seemed to uh, uh, be uh, in harmony with, with all this other evidence that you found. Uh, I find that absolutely amazing because m up until now, David, 
uh, wouldn't you agree that uh, most archaeologists and, and, and most uh, most chronologists, they'll start in in uh, the biblical text and they'll work the other way. Um, that is true to say for biblical historians, although they're a very rare species these days. Most people don't like to be called biblical archaeologists these days because they think it's somehow of a demeaning that they are. So most of your archaeologists working in the Holy Land or the Levant will say, well, I'm an archaeologist first and I'm a biblical historian second. But I think it's ironical from another respect, because what I find most of the criticisms of my work are, one of the things that comes up time and time again from scholars is, this guy David Roll has come up with this amazing set of synchronisms that's too good to be true. Now, what a thing to say. In other words, they're basically saying is that there's no way that this can be right, because it fits too well. And I would, uh, my response to that would be, well, hang on a minute. If it's right, if it's true, isn't it going to fit too well? Isn't it going to be right? You know, if you're going to get the history right, you're going to get things are going to slot into place. If you're turning around to me and saying, well, it's too neat, it's too perfect, that's not a criticism. That's actually a compliment. Well, uh, that bears uh, that bears out with just logical, deductive reasoning. We're not de dealing with variables here. Uh, this is not some sort of experiment. I myself, personally, David, would expect uh, everything that you found uh, to either agree or disagree. Because with history, it's different. You can build an outline for history. Mm -hmm. Now, scientific experiments, you cannot. However, with history, you can. So that kind of confuses me as to why they would say it was too perfect. Uh, history should be, in any event, it should be perfect. Uh, all the resources should say that the same things happened at the same time. So it's, it's, it's kind of preposterous uh, for them well, to say that, that history uh, is not perfect. That's it's kind of confusing. It, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because basically we, we have to understand something about history. History is not the past. The past is what happened. The, the events of the past are what happened, and the evidence for those happenings are, is found in archaeology. History is merely the interpretation of archaeology, and it's, history is our best guess at what happened. We will never get perfect history that matches the past, because we are there's lots of material that's unknown to us. We will never know everything about the past. So, I mean, even in archaeology, we've only actually, actually excavated so far 10% of what's there to be excavated. You've got 90% more to come over the next two or three centuries that people will be excavating in the Middle East. So history is an exercise of interpretation. What makes a bad history is when you don't have matches between the archaeology and the historical interpretation, or you have a few. What makes a good history is where you get more and more matches until you get to a point where you can say, this works too well, there are too many aspects of this pattern of evidence that we have that match the biblical story. Therefore, it must be a good version of history as opposed to a poor, poor version of history. I'm not saying we've got it perfectly right. I'm saying that we're getting close to being perfectly right because it's slotting together rather too well, as the other archaeologists would argue, to be anything other than right. <laughs> anything other than right. I appreciate your comment there. <laughs> Uh, David, I do have one question that you confused me about. Right. Uh, you made reference to this uh, statue uh, that uh, you proposed to be Joseph, and you mentioned the simple fact that it had red hair. 
Mm. And that would uh, lead credence to it being uh, Semitic. Um, I am unfamiliar uh, with that uh, terminology. Uh, I've studied history quite a bit, and I don't uh, remember uh, anywhere in, in my studies uh, there being uh, that type of statement that, well, it was red hair, therefore it had to be uh, Semitic. Um, can no, you explain that yeah. for me personally, please? Of course I can. Uh, what I should have said, perhaps, I don't quite remember what I said exactly, is that he can't be Egyptian with red hair. Okay, so he must be a foreigner from Canaan. But I want you to think back uh, a couple of generations in terms of the story of the patriarchs. Do you remember a brother, a brother of, I think it was either Isaac or Jacob, who had red hair? Do you remember that? Ah, yes. You mean Esau. Esau. Esau is only what? One generation before Joseph? In the that family? That is correct. That, that is correct. So the family trait, there is redheads in the family of Abraham. I see. Have, have you found any other uh, text uh, relating to Semites being redheaded other than the one you just quoted? No, we don't have anything. We do hear about ruddy complexion, and we're not too sure whether that means skin or whether it means other things. We do hear about that. But there is nothing specific about Israelites being redheaded Although we know they come from the north, they originate in the Zagros Mountains originally. So Haran, for instance, is just in the, the, the lowlands, just below the, the, the foothills of the Zagros Mountains. The origins of these people clearly come from the Zagros Mountains and further north, in the Edenic area, the area of Eden that we have located up there at the sources of the four great rivers, the Euphrates, the Tigris, the Pishon, and the Gihon. That's located north of the Zagros Mountains, the Alpine Valleys, that is Indo-European territory. That is not African territory. That is not Middle Eastern territory. These people could well have had red hair originally. And don't forget what the name Adam means. It means red, red person, red person. The word Adam means red, okay? The same word Edom means red as well. So it, there's an association of red in this, this family line. It comes down from the Edenic landscape up in the north, not part of the Middle East, further north in the Middle East. I see. Well, that's rather int intriguing uh, that you would say that. We are getting along here to the top of the hour, and uh, David has to pack tonight uh, as he's going to be on the move again. Uh, so we try to need to uh, lend him as much mercy as possible. But... Uh, I want Brian to jump in here with any uh, final questions that he has for uh, for David, and uh, just to make sure that uh, we get everything out on the plate um, that David has to offer uh, us tonight. And let me say this again, uh, David, thank you so much uh, for coming on. But uh, uh, Brian, your final questions, please. Well, there was a couple of details I just wanted to point out. You know, anybody that has worked or attempted to work with some sort of chronology that is synchronized in any shape, way, or form, you know, they will, you'll come to find out that you run into this brick wall when you are working with the standard models, you know, and as you had explained, David, those that, you know, start within Egypt, you right. know, and the one thing that I find interesting is when you look at the chronology in light of your work, 
and then you begin to sit down and look at the way other portions in history, you know, other times, and the synchronicity that is found within these time periods suddenly start coming to light. Yeah, the whole thing seems to fit like a glove. And that's extraordinary. When we come down to the monarchy period, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, we have remarkable synchronisms. We even have found letters from King Saul in the British Museum written to Pharaoh in Egypt. So it doesn't stop with the Exodus. The story continues. It seems to match all the way down through history. So it's, it's not a single part of history we're dealing with here. As you will see over the years, Tim Mahoney will be doing a new film which will be covering the later periods of the of the new chronology, if you like, of the revised timeline, to show that it isn't simply just the exodus we've got right. It's much more than that. It's the United Monarchy period as well. So it's a, it's a major work that's going on here. It's a major piece of research. And hopefully, the more and more the people hear about it, the more and more will realize that this is what we need to have for the biblical story. We need to have the archaeology that supports the biblical story because the biblical story is the foundation of most people's faith in the Western world. And so if you are a person of faith and you're told by these academics that your, your basis of your faith is no more valuable than Harry Potter, you know, and, and then you're, you're, you're basically undermining that faith. But if you can give them the Bible based on real history, based on archaeological evidence, that surely is supportive of faith. That is the foundation stone on which most Christians and Jews and even Muslims would want to have. A biblical story that's true, not a biblical story that's a fairy tale. Well, I for one want to state this for the record. What you just said is absolutely astonishing to me. You yourself said at the beginning of this broadcast uh, that you come uh, at this from an agnostic point of view. And I marvel at the simple fact that... uh, what you have done is not wholly unlike uh, what Joseph done. Uh, he went to a foreign place, and uh, he was raised up, uh, and done things that, that obviously helped a lot of people to the point where uh, they erected this statue and this uh, burial place for him. It would seem to me uh, that you have done the same, the, the same exact thing, and I, I marvel after that that uh, you went the opposite way. Uh, you... You started out with just the facts. You wanted the facts. What do the facts say? Let's determine what the facts are and what makes logical, deductive sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you set out to do, and it would seem to me that that is what you have, in fact, accomplished thus far. So uh, let me ask you as my final question. Where are you working now? Uh, are you uh, continuing? Uh, is your next book going to be uh, a... Uh, a furtherment of uh, Egyptian uh, chronology, or what are you going to work on next, David? You know, I really don't have an answer to that question. Uh, my whole focus at the moment is this new book, Exodus Myth or History. I've got to get that book out to the people. I've got to get people to read it, because that is the in-depth study of the whole story from the time of Joseph right the way through to the conquest of the Promised Land. And it gives you a lot more in-depth than I've been able to tell you tonight. It's much more in-depth than the movie Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, which is a shop window, if you like, I'll look into this world of this new device chronology. So what I would ask people to do is to read that book. Let's get that book out to people who want to study this material 
I get to understand the real story behind the Exodus legend. And then, whenever that's finished, we'll have long that's going to be, maybe another year or two, whatever, then I'll begin to think about the next book. As you probably noticed, I don't write a book a year. I write a book once every four or five years. And it takes me about two years to write one of these books. They're huge books. This most recent one is 416 pages long. It's got something like 329 color photographs in it. It's full of diagrams and charts and, and pictures of the, of the actual evidence. So you can see for yourself what the evidence is. I don't just want to tell you what it is. I want you to see it for yourself to be convinced. So these books are major projects. I'm not even thinking about the next book for the next two years. My job now is to evangelize this book and get it out to the Americans so that the Americans can see what fantastic work has been going on these last 35 years. I absolutely Go ahead, Matthew. Uh, I absolutely agree. So how can the listener get a hold of this material? Uh, can they get it on uh, Barnes & Noble? What's, what way do you want them to get this uh, book of yours? Right. It's not released into the bookshops at all. There are two ways you can get this book. You can either go onto Amazon.com and order it from there. And it's, as I said, it's called Exodus Myth or History with a question mark at the end. And if you just go onto Amazon, you'll find it for sale there. Or you can go onto the Patterns of Evidence website. This is the site of the company that made the movie. And if you then go to their shop, you can find it for sale there as well. So there are two places you can buy it in America. In the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, you go onto my own website because I've shipped a whole pallet of these books over to the UK and you can actually order it from there. And from there, the, the website is called www.exodus-myth-orhistory.com and you can buy it for the UK market, Europe, Australia, South Africa from that website. So the whole world is now covered as far as ordering is concerned, but it must be through the internet, not through the retail network. And I just, you know, I would like to point out and add in, I have a few of your books here in the house, and I greatly appreciate, you know, how much work you put into it, the documentation, the amount of evidence that you present in all of these works. And it's just absolutely amazing. And every book has just, it's been one of those places of study and research that I find myself going back to time and time and time again. I That's just, good to know. That is good to know. I'm hoping there are lots more people like you out there who've done exactly that. Well, I just want to say this. I'm, I'm rather upset that uh, the Americans have to get it uh, via a different way than the rest of the planet. Uh, that just don't make any sense to me. <laughs> but uh, Well, it's, uh, all about, it's all about postage and weights. You know, this book is a heck of a big book, and it's very heavy. So if a European wants to order it from the, uh, you know, from the UK or uh, from Europe, they have to send it from America, then it's going to cost more than the actual books actually for sale. So we have to have an American uh, distributor, which is Patent of Evidence, the publisher, and we have to have a European distributor, and I have to ship those books across the Atlantic on a, on a big ship, on a, in a big uh, container, and I've got a depot in, in the UK, so I can post out to Europe at a relatively cheaper cost by comparison to posting from America. I see. I see. It's the big pond in between us. That's the uh, one. Yeah. Well, it would seem to me that as many times uh, as Brian has had to reference your books, uh, I wouldn't actually call this just a, a book. I would call it a textbook. Uh, I think that uh, with the bibliographies that uh, you provided, which Brian has quoted from, uh, it would seem to me that uh, these should be uh, held in a little bit 
uh, more esteem uh, than you put forth, David. They they should be considered textbooks by any stretch of the imagination because you've literally given uh, all of the evidence. You don't you don't just say things, uh, you know, out of the uh, thin air. You actually lift uh, the proof, and you've been there yourself to see and to test these things. So that's that's rather quite amazing. Uh, I want to uh, extend to you my my personal gratitude uh, as well as Brian's. And uh, can you please tell us uh, your normal website? Do you have a website that uh, our listeners can visit at their leisure? I don't have a website. I have a blog site. And, and it would be great if people came along and joined that. Um, so I actually can't even remember what the website address is, but it's the David Roll blog site, official blog site. I'm sure you can find it on Google. Uh, and uh, I've got Facebook, of course. If people want to join my Facebook, I'm very happy to take people on Facebook. And, and funny enough, we do a lot of debating on that Facebook page. I mean, it's amazing how many questions I get, and I answer them, and then people come back with responses. So it's a very lively place to be. So if you want to come and join me on Facebook, just type in my name, David Roll, in the search engine, and you'll find me there. And so I'm very willing to talk to people and to, to write responses to people's questions. Because for me, it's all about getting the message across. It's all about communicating with the general public, especially those people who are fascinated by ancient history and the Bible. David, uh, it's been a great pleasure to have you on. Um, we uh, wish you uh, all the best and uh, safe travels uh, for you and your wife. And uh, thank you for coming on the broadcast. Uh, it has been a pleasure, sir. And thank you for having me as well. It's been great fun.